Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 22 of Sexology Podcast. I'm Dr. Nazanin Moali, your host. And today we're going to talk about psychological perspective on sexual fetishes. I know this is a very broad area and we're going to talk more about it in general terms and please let me know, email me, contact me if you know you want to know more specifically about one area or a specific kind of fetishes. I would love to explore that more in future episodes. But I thought that let's start our conversation around this topic and we'll see how interested you guys are in this phenomenon. Our guest today is Joe Zarata Sanderlin. Joe is a licensed marriage and family therapist seeing clients in private practice in San Francisco, California. He has been active in the open relationship and BDSM communities in New York, Boston and San Francisco for nearly 20 years. He earned his Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology at Pacifica Graduate Institute. Pacifica highlights the need for therapists to do their own inner work. As a part of this, Joe has examined the role of the unconscious dark side of the personality, often called the shadow, in his own life and the lives of his clients. As a part of his training as a therapist, he worked under the supervision of Darcy Easton, co-author of The Ethical Slot, The Topping Book, and The Bottoming Book. For two and a half years, he primarily saw clients in open relationships and BDSM relationships under Darcy's guidance. 
Since he became licensed in 2013, he has continued his focus on working with clients in the LGBT open relationship and BDSM communities. He is a member of both Gilasta and Bay Area Open Minds, two San Francisco Bay Area based organizations that promote and support therapists working with LGBT open relationship, BDSM, and alternative sexuality communities. He was recently named to the Bay Area Open Minds Board as social coordinator. Joe has conducted trainings for other therapists on couples therapy, BDSM open relationship, and talking to clients about sex, as well as guest lectured about couple therapy on the master's level. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Mr. Joe Zorate Sanderlin. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. As I mentioned during the introduction, I'm honored to have our guest today, Joe Zarate Sanderlin, a licensed marriage family therapist in Bay Area. Joe, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for accepting our invitation. I am super excited for our topic today because I know many of our listeners had questions about fetishes, what, it, what are some of the more common ones, how can they talk about it. So uh, let's start with talking about what are sexual fetishes. So I'd like to start with a quick clinical definition of fetishistic disorder, which I find even hard to say because I think this is not really what we're here to talk about, though I think it is important. So clinically, fetishistic disorder is a kind of paraphilia. A paraphilia is an abnormal sexual desire involving extremes or dangerous activities. Now I put abnormal in quotes because normal is a tough thing to define. And fetishistic disorder is a recurrent and intense sexual arousal either from the use of non-living objects or a highly specific focus on non-genital body parts. That is solely not related to cross-dressing, that's its own disorder, and not things normally used on the genitals, like a dildo or a vibrator. Now, this diagnosis doesn't really come up in my office or your office or another therapist's office. It tends to come up in prison or in an institution as a part of another diagnosis. And the most important thing to note is that it must create some impairment in functioning it must have an impact on your everyday life, your relationships, uh, are you doing it at work, are you doing it at school? And that is the case with many, many mental disorders that they have to have some sort of impact on your life. So for example, anxiety and depression are fairly normal emotions, except when they interrupt your everyday life. And I would say that most individuals who find a particular body feature attractive probably have some sort of fetishistic idea uh, if that body part is something that's sexually arousing. So interesting. Yeah. And I'm, I am very glad that you brought up the impairment in functioning because if the behavior as we're talking about is working people and it's not necessarily cause issues at work, at relationship that's, that can be uh, healthy. So is that correct? That is correct. Now, the challenge is that, of course, here in the Bay Area, there are um, some more open-minded people in some other places in the country and the world. They are more strict. So the baseline of normal and the baseline of abnormal can be very different. So 
even though it's something that's not harming someone, the way society looks at it may be very different. Uh, and there are many places where consensual sodomy mm-hmm. is illegal. And basically the definition of consensual sodomy is any sex that does not involve a penis and a vagina. So those laws are becoming more and more rare, but that reflected the uh, culture at the time when the laws were made. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm coming from a culture that's more conservative. And like, sometimes I feel growing up, the society wanted to kind of control how people define pleasure. And it's interesting to see we are not an isolated kind of unit. We're part of the society and how society thinks about our behaviors can impact our sense of self and whether uh, how are we seeing our pleasures and things we enjoy. Yes, most definitely. So what are some of the more common ones that you see in your practice? As you said, you know, there are the ones that most of the clinicians might see in their practice, and there are the fetishes fetishes that are less common. Well, before we go there, I would like to give what I consider a practical definition of fetishes and with a real cultural twist. Because I think about the historical and cultural aspects of a fetish, and a fetish is an ordinary object that is somehow made magical or mystical by a person or a community, and that magic comes from within, not from outside of the person or the community. It can't be imposed, and it's something that's used in ritual. And I think looking at fetishes this way helps normalize them in some sense because it's this idea of something ordinary becoming something extraordinary. And... A more simple definition is to fetish is something in particular that turns someone on and that can enhance arousal, desire, or performance. Now, the challenge is, and you mentioned that in some cultures they are, are more conservative, that there can be guilt or shame attached to an item or an activity that may be hard to talk about. Can you elaborate on the ritual part? Well, so for example, as we're getting into the different types of fetishes, and fetishes frequently involve a type of object, so for example, a high heel shoe, or a material like leather or latex or uh, even silk, or both of those things. So there might be a kind of play where the one person, and it's frequently male, not exclusively, has a strong desire for a high heel shoe, and he will engage in an activity with a woman where he essentially worships the high heel shoe. He might kneel before her and caress it and kiss it. There are more extremes where he might perform an act like fellatio on the high heel shoe and even the far extreme of things like insertion into the urethra. This is the way far end of the, of the spectrum. But it's a very ritualistic activity. Uh, and they even use the word foot or uh, shoe worship. So that's what I mean in terms of ritual. Interesting. And again, with the foot, uh, with the foot, with shoe, with those kind of things are the more common one that many of the listeners probably heard about. Right. So body parts like feet, toes, hair, uh, those are the most common ones I can think of. Now, it's very interesting because what are considered genital organs? So we have this sense of someone might be a breast man or a leg man. If someone is a breast man, and if you consider the breast a genital type of organ, realizing that it's not a penis or a vagina, does it make um, admiring the breasts more acceptable than admiring the legs? 
I don't think so. But And there certainly can be other body parts. Uh, I, things that I have heard about people becoming aroused are the, the curve of the neck or having the hair up in a particular way. Uh, so I think there are probably as many fetishes as there are people to have them. That is so uh, fascinating because then if we're thinking about it from a broader spectrum as you're talking about, it's not necessarily as a small a population that they have the, those tendencies. Correct, yes. And this also comes up with BDSM where people think it's such a, a niche activity and yet there might be tying up someone to a bed with silk scarves that would be considered a BDSM activity, but people don't say that they're kinky. Some other common fetishes include clothing, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, fetishistic disorder doesn't involve specifically cross-dressing, but specific garments can be fetishized. So, for example, things like clean or dirty undergarments, particularly panties, but also bras of women, dirty socks and workout clothes. And also clothes, as I mentioned, made of different materials like leather or latex or rubber or silk. And I think this gives you an example of the broad sense of a fetish where someone might say, dirty socks, what are you talking about? But for some people, there is an arousal there that comes from smell. And as many people probably know, smell is a very, very powerful sense. And for example, I know... I remember from 25 years ago, the particular smell walking into the bagel shop in Queens, New York. And that's like, that's my ideal of the bagel smell. And I live in California, so I can't really get that smell anymore. <laughs> uh, so I, I imagine you, you know what I mean. Right. So I mean, there really is such a broad spectrum of fetishes. It's actually hard to talk about sometimes because there's no necessarily uh, scientific reason for them. And all the time, I'm sure there are things that become fetishized that no one thought of. Oh, you know, I didn't think of actually thinking of yoga pants as a fetish, but they can be a fetish. Right. And how then, if you're thinking about it in that way, how then certain things are okay and certain things people say, oh, what's wrong with you? So that's interesting how society kind of plays a role in it. Right, for sure. And, you know, that's the one of the challenges is knowing what your surroundings are. And I think that's where some of the potential shame and guilt come in because I know that frequently people will feel some shame or guilt around an activity that they like, and it will be hard to talk to their partner about. Absolutely. And one question I had about fetishes, when people have those tendencies or preferences, is that they, they have to have that in order to get intimate, they're not be able to get aroused or reach orgasm, or that's something that they, they wished or they would like to be there. And, but if it's not there, they're able to proceed. Right. So now in a normal everyday fetish, my take is that it is something that is arousing to the person, but is not absolutely necessary for them to be aroused or to orgasm or to enjoy themselves. That's when the activity becomes disordered. It may not be the fetishistic disorder completely, but uh, like, you know, I, I agree. Here's a great example. I love pizza, but if I ate pizza all the time, I would probably not be very healthy. My doctor would not think that was a very good idea. And so what is the difference between that, uh, but I have pizza every once in a while and I enjoy it. 
what's the difference between that and I love high heel shoes and I enjoy seeing women in high heel shoes and having sex while someone's wearing a high heel shoe and but I don't need that all the time and it, the interesting thing is one thing you're talking about a food another thing you're talking about a piece of clothing but it seems like the piece of clothing is more stig- uh, stigmatized Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I know whatever comes to whatever it's gets related to sexuality, people kind of create an additional meaning to that. Right. Yeah. I do a lot of work with polyamory and I give the example of someone could be a composer and they spend money, they travel, their passion goes into that. They may even neglect their partner or their work duties, but it might be considered socially acceptable because they're a composer. But if someone is dating someone and spending money traveling, doing all those sorts of things, that seems less acceptable because it's actually love or sex with another person. Oh, what an interesting way of putting it. That's very, I'm going to use it in my sessions later <laughs> with your yes, permission. I, I have the example of someone I know who has a wife, a girlfriend, and two mistresses. So the two mistresses are his hobby and the company that he founded. Right. Uh, so all of which take time. You know, I want to touch on another idea, too, is this, it could be other objects, like, you know, someone might really like a work of art or a piece of music. It could also be a place. So people could fetishize having sex in a church or outside or in a particular location. And it could be particular activities. So, um, you know, off the top of my head, the way of doing something, I think, can, if it's to an extreme, can be fetishized. So having to do a arousing act or a sexual act in a particular way. So I think all of those fall under this umbrella of fetishes, not just, as the diagnosis says, non-living objects or non-genital body parts. Right. And when you think talking about it, it makes me think about how diverse these things are. And some of them are not necessarily as common. So I'm curious to see what's your thoughts on how they get developed, like developmentally. How can someone get attracted to something that's not usually common for others? Sure. Now, we don't really know where it's coming from. There's no actual that we have found that says, oh, if you have this gene, you're going to have a fetish and you're going to have a tendency for that. So my understanding that it could be possibly due to cultural taboos. Um, It's much more likely to be nurture rather than nature. And it could be a particularly remarkable experience. So something like you grew up and your, your favorite aunt always wore pantyhose. And she was the person who really paid the most attention to you and you would go to the park and you would hold her leg and you would feel the pantyhose. And later on in life, you might develop this affinity for pantyhose that doesn't necessarily have to do with your aunt, but it has to do with the texture and this experience of you were seen by this person in your upbringing. So that's an example of something that might be nurture. As I mentioned, also things like scent are very powerful. So you may just smell a particular perfume or smell leather and your body has a physical reaction. You know, the, the dancer Martha Graham says that the body doesn't lie. And when your body gives you information, it's like, huh, okay, I just smelt leather and I felt myself getting aroused. What's that about? But the baseline thing is that we don't really know. And that's the, that's, that's the thing about it. And I think that's an interesting 
topic to talk about because I would like to know where people's fetishes come from. Did they have an experience or is it something that they saw or something that they heard about or something that just happened incidentally? I mean, you can imagine that you're having sex with your partner and you realize that they're wearing silk and you, for some reason, your arousal is heightened and you repeat this over and over and you go, huh, there's something about silk that makes me more aroused. Interesting. And I know as you were talking about, based on my experience, also a big part of it come from early experiences. And I had a client that was telling me that uh, his mother took her to the event that someone with this particular costume and he got so excited, so like with happiness and joy. And that's how he kind of made sense of, okay, then I'm aroused to that because that, that day I experienced so much like excitement. So that's interesting. Right. Yeah. So one thing is that as you were talking about how people might sometimes feel lots of shame and guilt and being sometimes uncomfortable about talking about those like preferences, those fetishes. So what are some of the ways that you kind of recommend people to bring up their fetishes when they start dating someone or they want to get intimate with? Well, I have a few ideas on that front because I've certainly talked to people about it. And one thing that I say to clients is that sooner is better than later. I have this saying that I have used with probably almost every client I've had in the last few years. And that is that you can be uncomfortable now on your terms or you can be uncomfortable later on someone else's terms. So that means it might be a little uncomfortable talking to your partner about your foot fetish now but if she finds you sneaking into her closet in six months, that might be even more com uh, uncomfortable. Another way to do it is to potentially ease into noting a particular like of something. So, for example, oh, I just love the smell of leather. What do you think? Or, wow, those heels look fabulous on you. So that it's easing into and setting the context for the possibility of having this conversation. Uh, another thing that I'm a big proponent of is having consent for conversations. So for example, this is something that I enjoy and I would like to talk to you about. Is that okay? Or there is something I want to tell you about and I'm a little uncomfortable talking about it. Are you willing to hear me out? The challenging thing is that if you can't engage in this conversation and you still have your fetish and you hide it and you still act on it, taking owner, uh, taking someone's clothing without the owner's consent, engaging in activity without consent, then this may be more than feeling shame or guilt about a fetish. And you may want to talk to someone about it if it's something that you really need to hide. Now, again, that can be different in San Francisco than it might be somewhere in a more conservative place. Right. And I love that asking permission to talk about it. It kind of makes other person willing to listen to you when you're talking about a vulnerability. Right. You know, I really promote communication and I even believe that arguments are communication, but sometimes someone will start a conversation and I've heard the term, you vomited on me, like you unloaded on me, which is such a disgusting way to put it, but it's, I wasn't ready to hear all that information. So I'm going to immediately have a reaction. Right. And being intentional about it is important. I'm thinking about like big part of my practice. I know when people are out of school and they are working in a limited, like smaller areas, like smaller companies, it's just they meet most of the people online. And it sure. takes a while for them to kind of be able to see if the person is the safe person to talk about that. What's your thoughts on that? 
Um, you know, that's really interesting because I know there's been certainly a rise in things like Craigslist or chat rooms. And I think it's a mixed bag because I think it can be a safe way to engage in that activity just through text because you're not meeting the person. Uh, however, there's a great New Yorker cartoon that says on the Internet, no one knows you're a dog. You don't really <laughs> know who you're talking to. Uh, so someone could say that they're a 15 year old girl, which would be illegal, uh, or an 18 year old girl, and it could be a 40 year old man. So it's a challenge of you don't, if you don't actually know the person, is that really a safe activity to engage in? Right, especially if you want to kind of open up about something that's, you feel very emotionally loaded for you, you feel vulnerable about it. So yes, I can see that. Yeah. So the other part of the conversation is when someone shares with us something vulnerable that, you know, I have this fetish, I, I'm interested to do this, and I have the luxury of working with uh, very open-minded clients, and they want to be supportive about this. Sometimes they're not on board, sometimes they don't know. So what would be the good way of handling that conversation? Well, again, there's a few different ways to approach it. So hopefully you can be accepting and not be shaming, even if it's something that makes you uncomfortable. But I think it's also important to speak to that present that potential discomfort. So for example, something like, wow, thank you for sharing that. I, I realize that it's really important with you and I appreciate that you enjoy it. So I have to be honest, it's not something that does it for me. Another uh, way to approach it is, all right, if it's something that's not really outside of your realm of comfort, you might be willing to try it. And you might, uh, the person being told about the fetish, and you, the, you might want to ask, is this something you'd like to try? Dan Savage has this term GGG, which is good giving and game. And it means that you should be good in bed giving, but the most important part, game for anything within reason. Right. And it may be that it's not specifically arousing for you, but it doesn't turn you off and it's arousing for your partner. And then if you do try it and you like it, you may have discovered a whole new avenue of sexuality that you didn't even know about. Most people don't know that something is an erogenous zone until they try it, something outside the genitals or the breasts. Or, you know, so uh, I've heard stories of women who can orgasm just from having their toes sucked. So how would you know about that unless you tried it one time? Right. And I know I was sharing with you that I went to the polyamory workshop a few months ago and Dusty was talking about you got to try it a few times until you see whether it's a good thing for you or not. Right. So some other things you can do is try to support them exploring it on their own. So, for example, if someone has a fetish for wearing panties, you know, you could help them buy some and, you know, support them in actually wearing them outside. And also this idea of finding a way to, to address that desire or need outside of the relationship. So this is the potential beauty of an open relationship is that someone may be able to fulfill this want, need, or desire, and it doesn't necessarily have to be your partner. And you could specifically open your relationship for that activity. So it would be a very limited opening. It's not like you're dating. It's, I found someone who really likes my foot fetish. Can I engage in that person? And another way to do it is through using pronominance. Now, the challenge with pronominance is that in some places it's legal. In some places it's not legal. Many pronouns do things that are not intrinsically sexual, like uh, engaging in someone's foot fetish. 
they really are engaging in wish fulfillment. But as I said, this is really a fine line because fetishes are most often associated with arousal and with sexual activity. So even though I know that a lot of prodoms will use a disclaimer that, you know, this is for entertainment purposes only and uh, this is not for sexual purposes, um, there's also the phenomenon of going through the scene and the person who's engaging the prodom may end the scene by masturbation. So it's not the prodom touching the person, but it's an interesting line of, is this something that's permitted or not permitted? Now, thankfully, in some places it is legal and you can probably go to maybe Las Vegas or Amsterdam, I think is also one of the places, and be able to fulfill that fetish if you're able to do that. Now, all of this being said, if the fetish does present a problem, try to talk to your partner from your own experience. What I mean is saying something like, I know you really like this activity and it is a turn on for you, but it just doesn't do it for me. If you believe it's the only way we can be intimate, I'd like to talk about it. Rather than saying something like, so, I tried that gross thing you wanted to do, ew, feet, and it and you are disgusting. You know, both of those address a, a feeling that someone have has, excuse me, but in a totally different way. One is much more accepting and talking from the person's experience. The other one is is shaming and judging. Right, and if people are approaching it the same way that you um, kind of share with them about, like talking about it and kind of see where you are with it, then it wouldn't necessarily turn to this like a subtle anger kind of a statement because I feel one of the challenges is that people do things that they're not necessarily comfortable or they don't like it and they know they don't like it and then it builds resentment and they're not speaking up until they're kind of fed up with it. Right, exactly. And again, that's part of the talking about something now rather than later it may be uncomfortable to do. And I also like to say to people, you know, we have to uh, be adults and engage in that. But this idea that you can control the discomfort by talking about something sooner than rather than later is very appealing to a lot of people because it does help avoid some of that resentment. Right. I can see why someone want to postpone it. And I think it's very courageous to kind of like talking about and being proactive about it. Yes, uh, that's the thing is I'm not saying that this is easy. And, you know, I can talk from personal and professional experience of having to talk about something difficult. And it's not, you know, a pleasant walk in the park. Sometimes it can be really challenging. And sometimes that's, I recommend people either have a third party, a friend or a therapist there to be able to have those conversations because it's someone who can provide the context for the conversation and be a neutral party but be able to have each person have their say and speak to their feelings. Because feelings are always valid because you have them. And being accepting of other people's feelings, I think, is very important. Right. And sometimes people need kind of guidance and coaching around how to say what they need to say, but not necessarily blame someone else's or like shame other people's experiences. Correct. You know, I think that's very, very important. Kidjo, thank you so much. I noticed that we are toward the end of our time. I know you have lots of great information, wisdom. Uh, So how can our listeners get a hold of you? So my website is www.jzsmft.com. 
And uh, that has information about my work and some writing that I have done about different topics relating to therapy or sexuality. And it also has contact information for me. So that's probably the easiest way to reach me. Wonderful. I'll make sure I put the link to the show notes. And thank you so much for your time and sharing your wisdom. And thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Wonderful. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this show until the end. I hope you got some good information in regards to how to talk about uh, your fetishes, the things you would like in the bedroom with your partner without feeling shameful about them. At the end, I wanted to ask you guys for a favor. I appreciate if you leave an honest review on iTunes for this show, and I'm going to give you a little bit of incentive. If you write a review on iTunes only for in the month of the June and you send me a snapshot of what you wrote or you can just tell me the narrative when it goes live, I'll email you $5 e-gift card for Amazon, which you can use hopefully to buy uh, sex education books. We have some recommendation on our website. If not, I totally understand. Anyhow, I would love to hear your thoughts and we'll connect next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.